Good morning. Am I doing okay, mic-wise? All right. A little bit of echo here, but we'll work through that. Children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. I'm glad to see all the guys made it back okay, and uh, most of them made it to church. It looks a little sparse today. Uh, my opening line doesn't make much sense, though, but I, I was going to say, don't panic, the rapture didn't occur, because it is a little sparse, but, uh, you know, between the, the time change, the uh, snow itself coming in, and I looked out my window last night before going to bed, and my driveway was, was fine, no problem at all. Woke up this morning, I didn't wake up early to clear it or anything, I woke up this morning, there's four inches of snow drifts across my driveway, so I got the snow blower out, and so maybe some people are still out there digging out from under the snow, who knows, but uh, good to see all of you that made it, maybe we have a few more watching online with us this morning, so that's a good thing, we appreciate the opportunity. I also appreciate uh, Brian and the worship team, uh, you may not know it, but Brian always sends to the pastor, um, the preacher for that Sunday, uh, what is your topic? What are some of the key themes of your sermon? Uh, to try to work around the uh, music to the theme. And I tell him, I said, I can't think of anything right now, but you've got the expertise in this. I'm sure you'll find some things. And, and sure enough, he came up with a couple that I, I noted that were perfect for today's sermon. Um, amazing love and the, the line that says, In all I do, I honor you. And we're going to see a, a man by the name of Onesimus in the book of Philemon today that that uh, once he trusted Christ, he wanted to honor God, and through his amazing love, he was able to do something that he probably really didn't want to do, and we'll see that a little bit later. And also the song, Have My Own Way. Onesimus was ready to let God have his way in his life, and again, uh, have him do something he wasn't probably prepared to do. So Brian and worship team, we appreciate uh, your expertise in finding songs that are so appropriate for the message. Um, it's the time change that uh, prompted me to offer my services this morning, knowing that Pastor Todd and Pastor Dustin would be getting in late. Uh, I think they said 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock, the new time. And where is Pastor Todd, anyway? Is he hiding in the back somewhere? Oh, oh, there he is. Okay, okay. I'm just like my favorite audience is not sitting up here. Um, so they were getting in late last night. So I offered to teach this morning or preach this morning. Um, and when I first volunteered that, I, I thought that it was going to be, you know, at the end of his uh, sermon on Romans, his series on Romans. But then it turns out he's got another whole week to go. So uh, I was trying to find out something that uh, would kind of relate to Romans. There's going to be some doctrinal things that relate, but I was trying to make a connection since we're not quite done with Romans. It's next week, if he does finish next week, it will be his uh, 73rd sermon on uh, Romans. And, you know... <laughs> And there's another 20 weeks of other sermons in there, you know, maybe snow days or holidays, things like that. So uh, I did realize that, you know, Paul wrote the book of Philemon, along with the other three prison epistles, from Rome, later, of course, from Rome while under house arrest in Rome. And in Acts 28.30, it says that he was under house arrest for two full years, which is just... Ten short weeks shorter than we'll be in the book of Romans. Okay, nothing. I, I had more, but I'm going to you know, stop there. Oh, no, I have one more. 
So anyway, uh, I volunteered, I offered to uh, preach this morning for Pastor Todd so that he could do something that he rarely gets to do on a Sunday morning. Fall asleep during a sermon. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying he never falls asleep during a sermon. There's been a few times that I've seen his eyes kind of glaze over. Have you seen those? During one of his longer pregnant pauses. But fortunately, his wife knows him very well, and she'll accidentally drop a hymnal on the, on the floor when that happens, and it snaps him right out of that. Okay, enough picking on Pastor Todd. We love you, Pastor Todd. Uh, I've told Pastor Todd several times, he, one of the main reasons we're here, because when I heard him preach the first time, I knew this was a guy, of God, a man of God, and he's a great preacher. So we love you, even though you take us slowly through a book. I appreciate it, because as you know, uh, it stimulates my thinking, and I've had several conversations with Pastor Todd over the last... 73 sermons about some of the issues that uh, I'd never heard before or that, you know, I questioned. So, Pastor Todd, we love you. We appreciate the time you take to expound the word to us. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn to the book of Philemon. Now, you'll find Philemon after the two Thessalonians and after the two Timothys and after Titus. It's after those books uh, because it's the shortest of Paul's epistles that he wrote. And so they put it at the very end of all of his epistles. But in reality, Philemon is very, very closely associated with the book of Colossians, as we'll see today, and the other two prison epistles, Ephesians and Philippians. So really, Philemon should be right behind or right after um, Colossians. So why don't you go ahead and, and tear Philemon out of your Bible. It's just one page, okay? Tear it out of your Bible and put it after Colossians, okay? I'll wait. Some of you may know I took that from a movie called Dead Poet Society. Yes, okay. Anyway, Philemon, turn there and also get out your handbook, or your handout, excuse me. But before we actually get in there, Philemon is a fantastic story. It's a fantastic story about God and how he works in people's <laughs> lives. To me, the action, the events that are described in Philemon would make a great movie. It's got drama. It's got a little action. I don't think there's any romance in it. Well, God's love for us. There you go, romance. Okay, it's a great movie, okay? Now, when it comes to movies or books, my wife is a fantasy person. She loves fantasy. She loves all the Star Wars movies, you know, all 3,000 of them, okay? And and she loves the um, Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. She loves those fantasies. She loves, loves, loves all Hallmark movies, all 5,000 of those, okay? And we know that Hallmark movies, sorry, Angela, Hallmark movies are nothing but pure fantasy, okay? Fictionalized. There's not a, a thought of truth in any of those Hallmark movies, right, guys? None of that is true. None of the, those things don't happen, okay? But this particular book has a story that's based on a true story. And the story I'm about to read to you is, is a little bit of an elaboration from the book of Philemon. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, but I myself had taken some liberties in my interpretation of the book of Philemon to give you a fuller picture of what might have happened or what probably happened based upon Philemon and other historical sources. Therefore, you may never have heard some of the things I'm going to say to you, but this is my interpretation. And the views expressed here I'm required to read this next line. The views expressed here are not necessarily those held by North Anvil Bible Church. Okay? 
kind of a lengthy story, so stay with me. Once upon a time, there was a man named Philemon. Philemon had a wife named Mephia and a grown son named Archippus. Philemon was a wealthy man. He owned a great estate just on the outskirts of the city of Colossae in Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey. Among his vast possessions, Philemon owned quite a few slaves. Philemon and his family were believers in Jesus Christ, having heard the gospel through their neighbor Epaphras, who is a convert of the Apostle Paul himself. As the number of believers in Colossae grew, Philemon and his wife offered their large mansion as a place where Sunday morning services could be held. Archippus, their adult son, served as the pastor of this house church. So it was that every Sunday morning, dozens of individuals gathered in the house of Philemon to worship and praise their God and to share their love for him and for each other. During those services, while working in the fields or lounging in their modest dwellings, many of Philemon's servants, slaves, could hear the singing, the praising, the laughter and joy these believers shared with each other. Now, as Christians, Philemon and his family treated their slaves in a decent manner. They were fed well, clothed, and given adequate shelter. Yet, as is usually the case, there was one or two who were unhappy with their situation as slaves and desired their freedom. One day, one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus by name, probably a mere teenager at the time, decided he had enough. Early one morning, he snuck into the main house, stole a few valuables to finance his getaway, and he took off. At first, Onesimus didn't know where to go. He just headed for the coast, about 100 miles to the west, figuring he would catch a ship to somewhere. On his journey to the coast, he decided Rome would be a great place to live. He could easily get lost in the crowds of the great metropolis, and would provide the best opportunity for him to live as a free man. He figured Philemon would never find him in Rome. It was a long journey, and by the time Onesipus arrived in Rome, he had spent every cent he got from the valuables he stole from Philemon. And it turns out work wasn't as easy to find in Rome as he thought. It seems many others had similar notions about Rome being the Emerald City, of fame and fortune. So as he wandered the streets, Onesimus ran into a street preacher who was proclaiming the name of Jesus. This name was familiar to Onesimus as he often heard it from a distance being spoken of in Philemon's house, especially during those Sunday morning services. Onesimus approaches the street preacher and asks him about this man, Jesus. The preacher tells him that if he is truly interested, he could take Onesimus to speak with someone who could do a much better job of telling him about Jesus. So Onesimus follows him and meets a man by the name of Paul. Paul happens to be under house arrest at the time. His crime? Preaching about Christ Jesus. Yet, ironically, he is allowed to greet and entertain visitors and share with them about this Jesus. During this time together, Paul explains to Onesimus that this Jesus was the Messiah the Jews were looking for. He tells Onesimus how this Messiah died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world, even Onesimus' sin of stealing from his master. He further explains how if anyone would accept the payment Jesus made for their sins 
and trust in him as their savior, they could be assured of eternal life in heaven. Onesimus soon realizes that he needs the savior and becomes a believer in Christ right then and there. In the days to follow, Onesimus visits Paul on a regular basis, seeking to know about Jesus, about God, his father, and what it takes to live like a child of God. During this time, Paul tells Onesimus that one of the things a Christian should do is to make things right with anyone they have offended or harmed in any way. Paul encourages Onesimus to return to Philemon, his master, and to ask for his forgiveness for running away and stealing from him. Obviously, Onesimus is frightened to death to do that. But Paul assures them that by God's sovereignty, Paul knows Philemon quite well. He promises to write a letter to Philemon to help smooth things over and to pave the way for a more receptive response on Philemon's part. So Paul writes the letter to Philemon and sends it with Onesimus and another believer by the name of Tithicus. After a long journey back to Colossae, Onesimus and his companion approached the great estate. Philemon sees them from a distance, and he's visibly upset when he recognizes Onesimus. As they drew near to Philemon, Onesimus cowers behind his traveling companion, Tithicus, and with a shaky hand, he thrusts Paul's letter into Philemon's face and says, before you do anything to me, read this letter from your friend Paul. the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Philemon pauses, and with a puzzled look on his face, at the overstated our Lord Jesus Christ, he begins to read. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first three verses of Philemon. We're going to pause there. Because in these three verses, we see some people that are mentioned or associated with this letter to Philemon. First, of course, we see Paul, and we're looking at your handout if you haven't figured that out yet. We see Paul, who's a prisoner of Christ Jesus under house arrest in Rome. We also see the name Philemon. Well, we see Timothy there as well, but we see Philemon mentioned. This, as we saw in the story, is a well-to-do Colossae citizen. He hosts a house church, and as we see in a few minutes, he owns slaves. Aphia is mentioned, and we know that, uh, or we assume that Aphia is Philemon's wife. It's a female name, so we assume it's his wife. We see Archippus mentioned as our fellow soldier. And as we see in a few minutes, this is probably uh, Philemon's adult son. He's probably the preaching elder, or what we might call the pastor of the church in Philemon's house. And we'll turn to Colossians 4 in a second. Later on in verses 10, 11, and 16, we see Onesimus mentioned by name in uh, the book of Philemon. We'll also see him in Colossians 4, but we 
as the story says, we know that that's Philemon's runaway slave. And then later in this uh, book to Philemon, or letter to Philemon at 23 and 24, we see five people mentioned, and I call them the Philemon Five, just because it sounds nice. Nice rhyme to it. Philemon Five. We'll see those also in Colossians 4. Those are going to be Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. So hold your place in Philemon. Jump over to Colossians chapter 4. Or if you did, like I said earlier, if you tore Philemon out and put it behind Colossians, you're right there then. Colossians chapter 4. Let's start in verse 17. Here we see the name Archippus. And as we said, this is probably uh, Philemon's son, adult son. And it says in uh, Colossians 4, 17, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Because the emphasis here is on the ministry he's received, and we see in uh, Philemon it calls him the fellow worker, fellow soldier, we're assuming that he might have been the pastor or the preaching elder. Back then, they probably had multiple elders, uh, as we do in here at this church, and this particular one was the pastor. He's the Pastor Todd of the church at Colossae. Okay? Now look at uh, verse 7. As to all my affairs, Tithicus, our beloved brother, and this is still in Colossians 4, verse 7. Tithicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 9, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who was one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation. So from Colossians 4, we see that Tithicus and Onesimus are the carriers of this letter to Philemon. They're also the carriers to the letter to Colossae, as it says here, okay? They're also probably the carriers, and maybe a couple more people were there, to uh, Philippi and um, Ephesus. So what Paul did, he wrote the prison epistles to three different churches and to one individual. He sent it with several individuals, and I, one of them probably stopped and stayed in Philippi when they delivered that letter. Another one might have stopped in uh, Ephesus. But then Onesimus and Tithicus, the last two, continue on to Colossae. And to the church of Colossae, they handed two letters. The one to the Colossian churches, to the church, and to Philemon. Okay? So those are the Philemon five. You, oh, those are Philemon five are found in the next few verses. You'll see their name Aristarchus again. You'll see in verse 10, Mark. You'll see in verse 12, Epaphras. And in 14, Luke and Demas. So, Comparing Philemon with Colossians, you see that the letters are very closely connected with one another. All right? Now let's look at uh, verses, back in Philemon, verses 5 through 7. Oh, one other point. Uh, Notice how Philemon was supposed to read this letter to the church in your house, verse 2. That's going to be a little intimidating once you get into the, the letter itself at least through my interpretation. But he says, read this letter, not only the Colossian letter to your church, but also this letter to your church. So let's get into verse 4 then. The praise of Philemon. How many are familiar with the sandwich technique? What's the sandwich technique? No one? Don't know what you mean. Okay. 
Start with some positive. Positive. Okay. Nobody's heard of sandwich technique. Okay. Uh, yes. You start with something positive. You, you praise somebody or say something good about that person that you need to eventually rebuke. And then you throw in a rebuke or some correction of some kind. And then to soften up again, you end with some positive. I think Paul has got a little bit of a sandwich technique here. So he was familiar with it. He praises Philemon in verse 4 and 5. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. Paul is praising. He's laying it on thick here. I thank God every time I mention you in my prayers, your love for the saints and the faith you have toward the Lord, it is so magnificent. Well done, Philemon. He he starts off as a praise, and that's good. That's good uh, philosophy. But now I think six might be a little bit of a rebuke. Oh, the praise is the love and faith to Jesus and all the saints. But then I think there's a prayer here that might be a little bit of a rebuke. Let's see if you agree with me. Verse 6. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ Jesus. Notice how it doesn't say, I pray that your faith may become more effective. It doesn't say that. It seems to be saying that, hey, Philemon, your faith is not really effective. You need to do something with that. You've got great faith in the Lord, and you've got great love for the saints, but the faith is not effective. How does our faith become effective? Sharing it. We can share with others, and that's how our faith becomes effective. That's how the internal becomes external. That's how we win souls to Christ, because our faith becomes effective. And I'll elaborate upon that point a little bit later. But then again, he ends this little section with this idea of another positive statement. Verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through your brother. Notice how at the end of verse 5, end of verse 7, he talks about the saints. In the middle, he talks about how your faith is not becoming effective. The problem? I think, and I don't read this very much in commentaries, but I think Paul is trying to tell him the sharing of your faith doesn't extend outside the walls of your house church. The sharing your faith does not extend outside the walls of your house church. What's going on inside the church is great. Lots of love to the words of saints because the hearts of those saints are being refreshed. But Paul, I think, had a subtle rebuke there. Let's read on, and I think you'll see why. Verses 8 through 17 is Paul's plea to Philemon. And you notice, as you see in your uh, handout, there are going to be five contrasts. Five contrasts and four doctrinal themes. And we're not going to delve into doctrinal very much. And here's where Philemon does tie into Romans because these doctrinal themes are found in Romans that our pastor has been expounding upon to us for the last 73 sermons. Uh, But anyway, the contrasts and doctrinal themes. Therefore, verse 8, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Yet for love's sake, 
I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now also is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was this reason, for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Okay, five contrasts and some doctrinal themes. Verses 8 and 9, there's the idea of the order versus appeal. I could order you to do this because I'm the Apostle Paul. I could order you to do this, but instead, for love's sake, I want to appeal to you. Three reasons to respond. First of all, who I am. Paul says, I'm the Apostle. This is the guy... He says, such a, I am such a person. The person he is is Paul the Apostle. This is the guy that got saved by Christ himself. This is the guy that spent three years in the wilderness being taught by Jesus Christ. This is the guy that uh, suffered greatly for Christ in his ministry, as 2 Corinthians 11 tell us. So Paul is saying, I could order you because I am Paul the Apostle, capital T, capital H, capital E. I'm the Apostle. But I don't want to order you I want to appeal to you. That word appeal is in the Greek is parakaleo. Parakaleo. That might sound familiar because Pastor Todd's taught us that another name for the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. Comes from the same uh, root word. Matter of fact, para, P-A-R-A, means to come alongside of. Just like the word parallel. Parallel with two lines alongside of each other, right? So he's saying, I appeal to you. I want you to come alongside me in my thinking. And here's what I'm thinking. The word actually in the, in the King James is beseech. It has more of a kind of a strong emphasis. It's not just appeal, but I beseech you. Not quite begging, but pretty close to begging. I'm beseeching. I'm begging you because I am the Apostle Paul. And then he lays it on here a little bit. What I am, I'm the aged Paul's getting up there in years. He's got many years to go yet, but he's getting up there, so he kind of appeals to Philemon and says, you know, I'm an old man. Grant an old man's wish, you know? So he's kind of like uh, laying it on a little thick there, I think. Uh, he says, I'm the aged, so just because of my age, you should uh, listen to what I have to say. You should come alongside my thinking. And I'm also now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So again, a little pity party, I think, going on here, in a good sense, by Paul, because he says, I'm Paul the apostle, but I'm old and I'm a prisoner. Notice how back in verse 1, he says the prisoner. A lot of times Paul starts his epistles off with Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ. Here he says Paul a prisoner. Here he says in verse 9, a prisoner. 
in verse 10, in my imprisonment. Verse 13, in my imprisonment. He's emphasizing, he's making a point. I'm a prisoner. That only, indicate, that not only indicates he wants him to kind of feel sorry for him a little bit, as a motivation, if you would, but I think he's also emphasizing his imprisonment, him being a prisoner, because he wants to relate to Onesimus, who started off as a slave, somewhat of a prisoner of Philemon. And Paul's relating to that position. And he says, I'm too a prisoner, but I'm a prisoner for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, who I am, I'm Paul, I'm an agent, and I'm in prison. Then in verse uh, 10, he uses that word appeal again. And there's a contrast between usefulness and useful, useless. 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. The word Onesimus, the name Onesimus, actually means useful. He wasn't very useful to Philemon when he ran away from him, was he? And he might have stole from him. That's pretty useless. But Paul's saying, hey, he's a changed man now. He's totally different. He's useful both to you and to me. He's living up to his name now. That has the idea of a regeneration. A regeneration. Making a spiritually dead person spiritually alive. When Onesimus ran away from Philemon, he traveled to Rome, he found Paul, he sat under Paul's ministry, he got saved. He's a new man now. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's regeneration. Onesimus regenerated. He's gone from useless to useful. Verse 12. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to have kept with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. <clears throat> There's a contrast here between, especially in verse 14, compulsion and free will. Paul says, I could compel you, and this is like the third time he said this. I could compel you to do this, but I want you to do it out of your own free will. Okay? He has faith in, Ones- in Philemon that he will take Onesimus back. Compulsion versus free will. You can't order or compel true forgiveness and restoration. The person that has to do the reconciliation, the forgiveness and the res- restoration, has to be willing to do it. My wife and I have talked about this in some of our black sheep of the family members that we try and try and try to uh, restore a relationship with them, but if they have no desire whatsoever to be restored, nothing we can do about it. They can't be compelled to be restored. They can accept our forgiveness, maybe, or we can actually forgive them, but we can't compel them to restore our relationship. So restoration is rebuilding to what it was intended to be. Uh, the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus should have been one of brothers already. He should have trusted Christ as his Savior, whether he heard the gospel and rejected it or whether he didn't hear the gospel directly from Philemon and his house church. 
it should have been a better relationship there. But now it's being restored because now he's a brother in Christ, we'll see. Basically, Paul is asking Philemon to give Onesimus a mulligan. Pastor Todd picked up on this word right away when he saw my outline. A mulligan. What's a mulligan? A pass. A do-over. In golf, it's, we don't count that stroke, right? Okay? If you need more elaboration on the definition of mulligan, see our resident uh, golf pro, Pastor Todd. A mulligan means a do-over. I like the word do-over. A do-over. A pass. Uh, we're going to ignore that particular action. And that's what he's asking for. He's asking Onesimus, or Philemon, to give Onesimus a do-over. And in a way, as the title of my sermons indicates, Paul is granting Philemon a mulligan, a do-over. He says, hey, when Onesimus was with you as a servant, as a slave, there wasn't a right relationship between the two of you. Now, you're brothers in Christ. I'm giving you a mulligan. I'm giving you a chance to redo that relationship with Philemon, or Onesimus. And that's what the next contrast is in verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to you, to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He's talking about a new relationship. The way in which people regard and behave toward each other. In this case, Philemon, it should be brother to brother, not master to slave. It's a new relationship. He says a couple times, more than a slave, he should be more like a brother to you and to me. In the flesh and in the Lord. And verse 17, accept him as you would me. We're talking about a difference between a human relationship, master-slave, to a spiritual relationship, brother to brother. So it's a new relationship. In the flesh is human in the Lord is a spiritual. Reconciliation is what we're talking about. Reconciliation is coming to terms with a new way of moving forward. Paul is saying to Philemon, you need to move forward in a new relationship. Things have to be changed. Philemon, Onesimus has been changed. You need to change. Okay? You need to reconcile with your brother Onesimus. Verse 18. But he has wronged you. Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing. Um, notice how Paul describes Onesimus to emphasize the change. He says in verse 10, Onesimus is my child. In verse 12, he's my heart. In verse 13, he's my minister. 16, he's a brother. 17, he's a partner. And in the last part of 17, treat him as you would my, me. He's myself. Okay? So Paul is trying to really make a connection with Philemon and saying, Onesimus is totally different. You need to be, treat him that way. You need to look at him and treat him as a brother. Treat him as a uh, minister, as my child, the one, my spiritual child, the one I led to the Lord. He's my child in the faith. You need to treat him differently. So now look at 18. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Eh, not to mention that you owe me even your own self as well. 
Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. So here's Paul's promise to Philemon, verses 18 through 21 for now. Onesimus' death. Yes, Paul serves as Onesimus' advocate, just like Christ serves as our advocate with the Father. And he says, if he owes you anything, this is where I get the idea that he probably or maybe stole something from Philemon. So Paul says, if he owes you anything, I'll repay it. Nothing else, Onesimus stole his labor from Philemon. So Paul's saying, hey, put that on my account. Okay? Onesimus' debt is now my pledge. So if he stole from you, put it on my account. Paul says in verse 9, I take this pencil in my hand and I'm writing it in my own handwriting. Paul always used described. I think it's because he had issues with sight. I speculate that it might have been from the appearing, the glorious appearing that Christ came to him in a bright light and that might have affected his, it affected his vision temporarily, we know, but it might have caused permanent damage. So he always had a scribe writing. But now he takes it and probably in big letters writing, I write this myself. This is my pledge. I will repay you. But notice the parenthetical statement, a little tongue-in-cheek. Not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. I love it when somebody says that. Not to mention, then you go ahead and mention it. I do it all the time. Uh, he said, hey, listen, you owe me yourself. I believe from his history, historical sources, that uh, Philemon probably got saved under Epaphras, as I said in my story, but Epaphras got saved under Paul. So Paul is, Ones- is uh, Philemon's spiritual grandfather. Okay? So you owe me, Philemon. You're my spiritual grandchild. Yes, brother, verse 20, let me benefit from you. Benefit in the Greek is another form of the word that we see in Onesimus. It's onenemai. It comes from the same word. I think he used that word on purpose. You know, yes, brother, let me Onesimus from you in the Lord. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. And I have confidence in your obedience. I write to you since I know you will do even more than I ask. The the phrase even more is used three different times in this passage. I think Paul's applying a little bit of pressure here, a little sort of pressure. Would you keep your physical, fleshly brother as a slave, Philemon? Probably not. So this guy is your spiritual brother. Probably shouldn't keep him as a slave. He should be even more than a slave to you. And I have confidence in your obedience. I write to you since I know you will do even more than what I say. You'll not only forgive him, but you will give him his freedom. And then the last uh, four verses, 22 to 23, Paul says, At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Paul talks about personal accountability here. He says, I trust that you're going to do exactly what I request. I know you are. Oh, by the way, I'm coming to see you soon. Does anybody else see something there? (laughs) I'm coming to see you soon. Sue, prepare a room for me. I'll be checking up on you. I mean, I'll, I'll be coming to see you very soon. Paul had no idea when he was going to get out of prison. It looked pretty well. He's still under house arrest. It didn't look like he was going to be executed during this imprisonment. But he didn't know how long he'd be in there, how long he'd be in prison. But he says, prepare a room for me now. Expect me at any time. 
And so if I'm Philemon reading this, I'm going, oh, he might be here soon. I better take care of this issue between me and Onesimus real soon here, okay? So I think it's a little more subtle pressure. I hope to see you soon, because I know you're praying that I will be delivered out of this imprisonment. And then he mentions the Philemon 5, the ones we saw in Colossians. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. And two of these we saw uh, are actually from Colossae. So, but all four must have been known to Philemon, or else Paul wouldn't mention them. So I think he's saying, not only am I going to come see you soon, accountability, but here's five people that are waiting to hear, the people that you know well, that are waiting to hear about how you are treating Onesimus now. Again, maybe a mortism, reading into it, but I think he's applying a little pressure, saying there's some accountability here, uh, Philemon. So, Paul grants Philemon a mulligan, a chance to do over his relationship with Onesimus. Onesimus may have needed to travel like 1,300 miles to get to Rome and finally get saved 1,300 miles away from this house church that he's been so close to. But now Philemon has a chance to start a new relationship with Onesimus as a brother in Christ. It's a mulligan. But the letter to Philemon also pictures the mulligan that we receive from God, doesn't it? As sinful unbelievers, we had a chance to do things over again when we heard about Jesus Christ and the payment he made on the cross for us. God gave us a mulligan, a chance, a do-over, to have a right relationship with him. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ and the payment he made on the cross, we too can be regenerated, passing from a spiritual dead, useless life to a spiritually alive and useful life as a Christian. And now, as Paul Harvey used to say, for the rest of the story, you, sometimes you leave the book of Philemon and you say, oh, that's a nice story, and you move on. But you know what? There might be a clue as to what happened, truly happened, in history. What happened to Onesimus? Well, in AD 110, an early church father by the name of Ignatius, who was a disciple of the Apostle John's ministry, wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage them in their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. In this letter, he describes the wonderful minister they have, a man by the name of, what do you think? Onesimus. Onesimus. Whoa. Called him a bishop. Bishop Onesimus in Ephesus. Bishop is a similar title to elder or pastor. In those days, there were probably many or several house churches in these big cities. And maybe, I'm just speculating here, I think it's supported by some facts, maybe a bishop was one one of the more mature elders in that area, and he kind of oversaw the other house churches. So Bishop Onesimus is referred to by Ignatius in this letter in AD 110. And he uses the same play on words on the name of Onesimus that Paul used in his letter to Philemon. Ignatius writes, quote, Your bishop is Onesimus by name, which means profitable, useful, and Onesimus by nature is the profitable one to Christ. Hmm. So could Onesimus, the bishop, be the same Onesimus Philemon's runaway slave? I think so. If Ephesus is only 100 miles from Colossae, that's not too far. 
And you can imagine that Onesimus was accepted by Philemon. Philemon accepted him as a brother in Christ. Probably, maybe, sent him back to Paul to minister to Paul because Paul was hinting at that, wasn't he? You know, I sent him because I didn't want to hang on to him, but I really wish he could have stayed. I'm thinking that Philemon sent him back to Paul. Onesimus sat under Paul's ministry for some time, became very, very spiritually mature, very theologically sound, knew the scriptures, and eventually, under the spiritual growth maturity that he achieved under Paul's tutelage, he became a leader of the church houses in Colossae, or excuse me, of, in a, Ephesus. The accommodation from Ignatius would have come while Onesimus was approaching his late 60s, maybe early 70s. So it's not chronologically impossible that he would be a bishop in uh, Ephesus in his 60s and 70s. So, even if it wasn't the same Onesimus, I think that Paul gave Philemon a mulligan, so Philemon gave Onesimus a mulligan, a second chance as well. What about you? Do you have someone you need to give a second chance to? In your handout, there's a, a little application section. As a result of this uh, sermon or lesson, is God prompting you to give someone a second chance? Or do you need, do you need to ask someone to give you a second chance for something you've done wrong? To help set this matter before God now, fill in the blanks below, and I'll let you do this later, but write in the person's name that you need to ask a second chance of or that you need to give a second chance to. What was their offense against you or your offense against them? How will you contact them? Get specific. I'm going to invite them over to dinner. I'm going to write them a letter, email them. I would say make it a little bit more personal. Email a phone call or dinner. And when will you contact them? I'm going to do this no later than such and such. I encourage you to do that. Make the effort this week to grant somebody a mulligan. Provide them a second chance no matter how bad they wronged you. Who knows? That person that you give a second chance to may become a prominent Christian leader someday.